When I was a kid, I remember going over to a family friend's place in Hamilton, Ontario for a family get-together and finding out they had tinkered with their television antenna and were pirating MTV from America. I still remember watching a Motley Crue video and a Van Halen commercial with mouth agape, wishing we had something like that in Canada. Only a few months later, at the end of the summer, much music launched in Canada. It was the country's answer to MTV, but only available as a specialty channel. I still happily watched it scrambled, just so I could see a bit of the videos and hear the music. Occasionally, it would unscramble for like a week during some subscription drive, and I would try and catch every minute, even watching music videos of bands and singers I loathed. Once it was on basic cable for everyone to see, I pretty much watched it nonstop. For someone like me, who constantly read music magazines and listened to cassettes and records from sunup to sundown, much music brought these bands to life. I watched how these two-dimensional characters jumped from the music pages and record covers onto the screen. I watched how they performed, how they moved. I listened to how they spoke, how they behaved. It was mesmerizing. We take this all for granted now with YouTube and Spotify, but imagine staring at photos of, let's say, Rat or Iron Maiden for two years in Circus Magazine or Hit Parader, and finally seeing them moving on a screen, watching how Warren Martini holds his guitar pick, or watching the band perform, or dressed up as cowboys in some nonsense video storyline. And imagine that for every single band you loved. I really believe it's a large part of why Metallica and Slayer became so popular when they did. The mystery of the bands had built to such a fever pitch four to five albums into their respective careers that when they both relented and finally released videos, it it was like dams were breaking. Finding out about cool music was a secretive underground thing, much more than it is today. And when you didn't have any older siblings or enlightened cronies to confer with and your budget was uber-limited, like my situation, often it was much music that became the only pipeline for finding out about bands you had only heard or heard about. I discovered many bands for the first time through much music. Shows like City Limits and The Power Hour were the television versions of the late-night college radio shows I was listening to in tandem. Shows like Aggressive Rock and In My Head on CKLN and Fast and Bulbous or Autopsy Turvy on CHRY. The video jockeys, or VJs as they were called, who introduced the videos played on Much Music became almost as memorable and famous as the bands they were presenting. When it came to City Limits, a show that originally aired on regular television, City TV, and a show I watched back then too, was, dare I say, the first alternative video show in North America? They would play a Susie and the Banshees video and then follow it with Mud Honey and Nitsareb videos, and it would all make sense. And we're talking 1989? There was nothing like it on television. Hell, there's nothing like it on television today. The only dividing lines was us against them. Them meaning mainstream pop that had got played on regular hours. A show like City Limits brought these disparate genres and scenes together, and it enabled music fans like myself to enjoy them in the privacy of our home without getting caught up in scene drama. 
Christopher Ward was the host of City Limits for most of its run, and he was also one of the original VJs on Much Music. Even to this day, when I hear the term alternative music, in my mind's eye, an image of Christopher Ward with the City Limits logo beside him is conjured up. Years before alternative music became a genre unto itself, Ward was playing these alternative videos. To me, he's as big a figure as the band's. In addition, something most of us viewers were unaware of was Ward's other job as songwriter. But we all found out when Black Velvet by Alana Miles spent two weeks at number one on Billboard, a song he co-wrote and a song whose video received a lot of play on not only much, but everywhere around the world. In 2016, Random House released Ward's book called Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music, the nation's music station, an oral history of much music that featured quotes from a lengthy cast of characters. All the VJs, the bands, everyone from David Bowie and George Harrison to Lorraine Segato and Larry Gowan. It gave a behind-the-scenes look at the station that already seemed to be quite informal in its presentation. Well, since growing up with the channel, I had to get the book, and I couldn't put it down once I started. I highly recommend it to anyone who also had much music on continuously at home while growing up. The moment I finished the book, I wanted him on the podcast. It's taken some time, but since then, Ward has started his own podcast with Tom Jokic called Famous Lost Words. And I swear, it is one of my favorite podcasts out there today. I'd say top three, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. The two of them dig up old interviews of famous musicians going back sometimes 30 to 40 years and pick the best parts to discuss. We live in a world where only the newest and latest seems to be of value. But I think there's a quiet majority who value these talks more. Think of Famous Lost Words as the audio equivalent to those Howard Smith, Lester Bangs, Nick Kent, and Rolling Stone interview compendiums. We can all listen to Elton John do an interview about his farewell tour today, but I want to hear the Elton John when he had just come back from his first tour of America. Famous Lost Words satisfies those kinds of cravings. Plus, Ward's personal stories about some of the subjects sprinkle the podcast and range from impressive to jaw-dropping. It makes the podcast almost mandatory listening for any music fan. Seems like the podcast, this one, mine, has turned into a book podcast in recent months. With all the episodes revolving around my book, I've Got Something to Say over the summer, and the last podcast episode about Tomorrow is Too Late the book on Toronto Hardcore in the 80s. And now, Christopher Ward with Is This Live? I hope you dig this one because I loved talking to Christopher Ward. Check it out. Christopher Ward, author of Is This Live? Much Music VJ, member of Ming T, and one half of the famous Lost Words podcast is on my podcast, and it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around They play the kiddies, take us, go out, tell them for free I'm sad, glad I like to sometimes Jimmy in from Fucktown, stop playing Hangtown I know that disco and rock and roll aren't supposed to mix And we all know how great a rock guitarist Danko is But when I accompanied him one night to a disco nightclub I watched in awe as Danko tore up the dance floor He was like Danny Terrio, John Travolta and Adrian Zemed all rolled into one 
When he was finished dancing, the music stopped and everyone applauded. The two of us immediately left the club and ended up in a blues bar where I watched Danko jam on CCR and Chuck Berry covers till dawn. It was amazing. Danko Jones has a podcast. It's called the Danko Jones Podcast. La da 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 da. La da 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 da. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready because the Danko Jones Podcast starts. Hello, Christopher. Yes. <laughs> well, I have to. I have to start by saying that yeah, I do this. I've been doing this podcast for quite a few years now, but I am. I have to start it off. I don't know if I should, but I'm very, very uh, nervous to talk to you because oh. yeah, just because I thought I had a handle on it when I actually tweeted you and and asked to you know i was i was trying to tweet you to because i'd read your book is this live and i i was so interested in having you on the podcast but and but researching doing more research going back to the book and then listening to your to your podcast i started to realize that a you were the guy that i was watching interview people so you you've been doing this um way longer than i have and with heavier people than I have and just then there's so many facets to you I don't know where to start and even even with <laughs> we the could start with breakfast yeah, <laughs> with the book itself it's yes it's about much music it's about this video channel that started in the 80s but in in the pages it's so wide Everyone from Corey Hart to, to George Harrison to Lee Aaron. I mean, I don't even know where to start. And then the crew and the VJs and everybody. So I thought I had a handle on it. I was going to ask you about the process. And then everything just unraveled. So I'm going to just start with what made you write this book? Well, <clears throat> I guess, uh, you know, there was a story to be told. And there's a time when it feels right to do something in, in your creative life and just in the, you know, the, the span of <clears throat> broadcast history. And, I, you know, I always get together with my much friends when I'm in Toronto. I've kept so many close people from that time. And, we, you know, we invariably go back to some of the old jokes and stories and laughs and stuff. But, you know, there's always new stuff that comes out, and it just seemed like such a rich time, and I, I was worried that it would just get kind of lost if mm. I didn't um, start to chronicle it. So I literally began, you know, putting my phone on the table when I'd get together with my friends, and I told them what I was doing, obviously, and I just said, look, um, let's talk about it. I'm going to record it, and then maybe there's a book in this, and it turned out there was. <clears throat> Excuse me, I ate a muffle of granola right before talking with you, and that was a big mistake on my part. <laughs> How many people were interviewed for this book? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> a lot. I mean, certainly over 100 for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but some of them I did in groups as well. And that was, see, that was really fun oh. when you get together. You know, I'd, I'd say gather up um, 
<laughs> that is the sound of my dog trying to nest into the carpet. <laughs> Buddy, come on. Uh, and so I would get, say, a group of um, guys who were promo reps who used to service much back in the day, and we'd all go out for drinks. And again, you know, I just recorded. And some of them were a little chaotic. And then sometimes, obviously, I had to do more extensive one-on-ones like when i talked to moses i didn't try to group him with anybody <laughs> of course yes he has his own chapter i mean <clears throat> well as he should yeah God knows. yeah yeah but also and uh, i don't know if you you i be, i guess you took on a lot more work than the the regular oral history in that you seem to have combed through actual video footage interviews archives of people yeah. like kurt cobain and george harrison <laughs> Um, now how much was that taken from like your memory going, Oh, that interview, I'll never forget that. Let me find that. Or were you just like combing through it? Well, it kind of started just random combing. And again, you're right. Just based on my recollections of what were important interviews, but also as I talked to people, particularly, um, on air people, they all had favorites. And they all had least favorites. So that would be, a, you know, a guideline for me as far as what else to pursue. I spent a couple of months in the basement of, of mm -hmm. 299 Queen. Uh, and the librarians got to know me very well. And um, <clears throat> it was really fun. I mean, obviously, it, it was a hugely nostalgic experience for me looking back at it. And in some cases, you know, your memory doesn't line up with what actually happened, too. That's, that's <laughs> always interesting. Um, now, having read the book and over the summer, you told me about your podcast. Um, now that yeah. we're on the topic, I, I, I was able to bridge the two together. And what didn't line up was how you perceived your now infamous Elvis Costello interview. It's, <laughs> it's kind of changed in your mind's eye, right? Yeah, well, I mean, he's a pretty crusty guy at the best of times. And he really had his curmudgeon hat on that day. And I don't know whether it was just something about me that set him off. At least that's what I thought at the time. And I kind of, <clears throat> you know, walked away from it thinking, wow, that did not go well. That was that was a pretty abrasive situation. Um, and I'm sure we showed, you know, at least a couple of clips of it because it was it was one of the few that wasn't live. It was shot in a hotel room. And um, and I used a bit of it um, on a one-hour songwriting special that I did. I had the good fortune of interviewing Paul McCartney around the same time, so I got to ask them about how their collaboration worked and then intercut the two interviews. And so that was fascinating, especially mm -hmm. for a songwriter. Mm -hmm. um, but it was only when I went back and looked at it that I realized, well, that's kind of his persona, and he snaps and snarls and spits and, you know, opines just left and right. And it's great television. It's so entertaining. And I think originally I just thought I'd done a bad job. And then I realized it wasn't about me. you know. Right. Yeah. So that was how I reconsidered it. Now, you know, you are, whether people knew it or not, and I only knew it afterwards, you were a VJ, but you were also 
you're also a songwriter. You're behind the curtain as well. Um, and so th- as a songwriter, you're a f- obviously a fan of music. And I, you know, I'm in a band. I'm a fan of music. And we, we roll in these circles where eventually you stick around long enough, you're going to meet some of your heroes and you would meet them on a weekly basis. Now, the, the, the old saying is never meet your heroes or don't fly too close to the sun. Would Elvis Costello, was that put in that category where you just like, I can't listen to Costello albums anymore? Well, you know, that's a good question. I think at the time, <clears throat> I really, really respected him. I had actually stood in line outside of the El Macambo, you know, some years earlier to catch one of those legendary shows and sat right up front and just, I don't think I blinked over the course of it. Wow. Um, and it just, you know, blew me away. And I loved those early records in mm-hmm. particular. Mm-hmm. So I went into the interview obviously knowledgeably but also you know thinking okay this i'm putting this songwriting thing together i'm going to get amazing stuff from this guy and he sort of you know at one point he said oh you know talking about songwriting that's like taking a child's toy apart it was like oh oops sorry right (laughs) and then he turned around and gave me great stuff it's like you know i do i do understand that point though I mean, I guess he could have said it nicer. <laughs> no, Elvis doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, in a way he's right. And if you talk to enough songwriters, and goodness knows I have, most of them will just ultimately say, I don't know where it comes from. I'm I'm more of a vessel for this process. Mm-hmm. The songs are just up there, and then I, I pull one down every once in a while. Um, or some some sort of variation on that. <clears throat> and, um, you know, there are mechanics to songwriting. And in a lot of cases, people don't want to show you how they got to the end of the process because they figure it'll kind of spoil the magic. And, and I know that, too, because people ask me about Black Velvet all the time. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I keep a few aspects of it to myself. Right. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're talking about process sometimes kind of ruins it. Like it shows the uh, the wizard behind the curtain, so to speak. <laughs> Definitely that going. It does. But uh, that's okay. I mean, people are people are curious and and there's also, you know, amazingly enough, I find like the really really big songs often have a really interesting story attached to them. And it's not what you'd think. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's kind of what uh what is entertaining for the fan, I think, you know, rather than the, well, I sat and labored over what chord to go to after the A flat. And, you know, I mean, nobody cares about that. Now having, you know, we've got the book, is this live? And then, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, you turned me on to your own podcast. And I have to say, I spent the whole summer listening to it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. And what really kept me, uh, going back to each episode was just something that I don't think people have really stumbled on is that all these s- s- rock stars, like I-, I mentioned Elton John, I think about Keith Richards, they're almost in 2018, like character caricatures of themselves. 
Now, you know, like <laughs> yeah. Keith is, you know, synonymous with that. Oh, he's going to outlast a cockroach and Elton John with his glasses. <laughs> but these these snippets of of uh, the interviews that you and Tom Jokic talk about it and play really remind someone like me who's been bludgeoned by these images of these characters that, you know, they were really just normal, down to earth, trying to make it musicians like Elton John just yes. went to America to, to, to record shop, which blows my mind that he can be that down to earth and kind of cool and just a real music fan rather than like well, and George Harrison the same. I mean, everybody talks about the arrival of the Beatles and you see all those iconic photos of them on the tarmac or that video footage of them doing those big, um, you know, group press conferences and stuff. But he actually came to America before the Beatles did as a band. He had a sister living in Canada. And the, his first thing was, you know, hitting record stores. It doesn't change. I love, the, I love that, that, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about George Harrison. And I didn't know about it, about Elton John. But that's what we all do on tour. When we get in the van and we hit a city to play a show... And there's, you know, we hear that there's a record store three blocks away. We <laughs> will go directly to that store. I have to go to Hamilton tonight, and someone texted me the address of some record store in Hamilton that I have to hit, you know. <laughs> and so that's that's just how I'm, I just love the fact that even though these guys are these larger than life superstars that seem to float in space at this point in time. Really, they just want to find the, next, the the record stores, you know, and that is amazing. And the, the podcast really uh, reminds the listener of that and also unearths so many facets to all these individuals who we've kind of kind of put in a corner in a way. I put Keith Richards in a corner. He's he is Keith, but he's. You know, he's the Stones guy. He's the this, yeah. you know, this um, larger than life. Uh, he's, he's Mike Myers' in, uh, impression of him. <laughs> Ex actually, that's exactly it. He's become Well, you know, that. they're also all musicians. Did you ever see Spectacle, the um, television series? Well, Elvis Costello's. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually, Elton John was one of the executive producers on that, and he was the first guest on the first season. I saw almost every episode. Well, that one is worth looking at if you missed it because he he talks about, he's sitting at a piano and he talks about the people that influenced him. And they, again, they're not who you would necessarily suspect, but he goes beyond that. He'll talk about Laura Nero, a wonderful New York songwriter who I loved growing up. And he, he explains how she play her song sort of varied in tempo over the course of the song and i mean you you don't hear that now i mean we, you know mm. we are just you know slave to the groove now and um or slave to the rhythm i think grace jones said but you know it's because you know we use machines for every aspect of making music even if it's just to establish a template for something or when we're writing you don't think about changing tempos in the middle of the song and he showed how he had gotten that from her one of her songs, I think it was Sweet Blindness, maybe. And then he put it in one of his, and he showed how he used that exact technique in one of his own songs and where he got it from. And it was like a revelation. And it was the stuff that he cared about the most. 
I've always heard uh, little stories about Elton John name dropping new singers here and there. I remember he name dropped Amanda Marshall. Yeah, uh, I remember that too. That and that, yeah, that made some waves, and at least in these parts, I didn't. Well, and Keith, I mean, Keith is a, is a musician too. I mean, think about that, um, you know, the Hail Hail Rock and Roll movie that, you know, I think Taylor Hackford directed. I mean, Keith yes. was a prime mover behind that that film happening. I don't think Chuck was a bowl of cherries to deal with. That's all I remember from the movies is like Chuck Berry cussing out Keith Richards and and it made the final cut. <laughs> yeah, well, warts and all. I mean, it, but the thing was he did it obviously with affection for Chuck Berry and and as an homage and and as a way of showing his gratitude and how much that music meant to him as a kid, you know? I want to I wanted to actually you mentioned spectacle and bringing up Elvis Costello earlier I did want to mention spectacle now you've you've seen the show when you watched that Elton John episode or any of the other episodes did you watch it with this history and experience with Elvis Costello like now you know <laughs> you know what I mean because he oh. was he was the interviewer <laughs> on that show there was there was a moment where I went <laughs> So now you're having to ask the questions that were so annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coming from me. Yes, there was a moment there, Dave. <laughs> I will admit it. Hey, you have, we have to say the name of my podcast. It's Famous Lost Words. Famous Lost Words. Honestly, I got to say, like, Famous Lost Words really surprised the hell out of me. Because when you told me about Famous Lost Words, and then I listened to a couple of episodes the the premise of the the podcast just digging up old material and Tom Jokic seems to go through it with a fine tooth comb. Oh, is he ever? It's yeah. it's so well picked, but such a reminder that man, there's so many diamonds in these interviews that have just been left on the beach as we just head towards uh, a world where it's just soundbite after soundbite after soundbite. Yeah. And these nuggets. Well, and even then, even then it was the soundbite world. But what that means is that what we're able to unearth is stuff that has never been aired. <clears throat> and that's the fun of it. We got, we got to get some more listeners. I, I I must say, I I know how to talk about music, but I'm not sure I know how to sell a podcast. The best part of of the podcast is... You get the nuggets that Tom digs up, but what you also get is your experience as not only a much music VJ, but just as a person in the industry, as a songwriter, like a total behind the scenes industry. Like the one that blew me away was the Diana Ross story. And then Michael Jackson calls. Oh, <laughs> and I, I just, I, you know, I, I, we all knew like once you left much music, we all knew you, it was greener pastures for you because of Alana miles and black velvet. We knew that was in your cards. Like, I think if you were paying attention and you know, you were a fan of much music and you, you know, you just had your ear to the ground, but I didn't know it put you in those kinds of circles as well. And then you just drop these stories about these heavy ass people like, you know, you're just, I don't know, pulling lint out of your pocket. And and uh, like I'm talking like Robert, the Robert Plant story. I've already told to like three people <laughs> and telling them they have to listen to the podcast. Um, oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a pretty, a pretty hysterical night, particularly in retrospect, you know. 
Yeah, and I mean, you not only were you a VJ on Much Music that got you in in the same room with every single rock star on the planet, but your friendship with Mike Myers, your uh, working relationship with Alana Miles put you in even further odds and ends circles of, of, of show business that I don't think, I think few people have been able to, to experience from like different points of view of the curtain, you know? I am Zelig, Danko, that's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I love, I just love it. And I, I wait for that moment on the podcast where you are going, oh, we're talking about so-and-so. Well, you know, I I remember I played Frisbee with them, like in the back (laughs) lot, you know, whatever the story is. So, well, I don't, uh, what, I, I don't know what I'm going to do when I run out of stories. I guess I'll have to start making them up, right? <laughs> well, by then you would have got me. I would have just bought it. I would buy everything hook, line, and sinker by then. <laughs> well, I'm really glad. It's, it's so great because you don't always get much feedback on these things, as you know. So it's really nice to, to hear that you're in, enjoying the shows because I, I, it's such a kick to do them. Oh, don't change a thing. As a fan, it's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I swear to God. The only thing I would I wanted to say, and this kind of like leads me in, back into the book, and it's always it's always been something I've always wondered about you. You were a VJ on Much Music during the '80s. Now the '80s was a very odd time in music, especially when it came to hard rock and heavy metal. I'm in a rock and roll band. I grew up as a metal kid. I got into punk rock, and then once I got into punk rock, all bets were off. I got into everything. But I was a metal kid and a punk rock kid watching City Limits, watching you. And I always got this feeling, and it was kind of confirmed with the podcast, that you didn't really take hard rock and heavy metal very seriously. Now, now that the dust has settled, the genre is still around. Because in the 80s, it it was a big joke. I mean, it was misogynist. It was, it was uh, more than playful. It was, uh, it was ridiculous at times. So I could see where you were coming from. I could see how you would just look at it with an eyebrow raised. But it's had some time now to live uh, and breathe and become its thing and mature in a way. Your, you know, the wisdom of David Lee Roth Corner, as much as I love it, and I'm a sucker for every quote, I know you and Tom include it with... A tongue in cheek, and I well because he's a mental case. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean it's funny as hell. Yeah, but remember, like, okay, I I I, I see your point. Um, we did approach with raised eyebrow, but like what I remember, and it, you know, you're probably thinking also of the Power Hour chapter in the um, Much book. In those days, I mean, so much of that we'll call it hard rock music was in the, the vein of almost buffoonery, you know, the sort <laughs> yeah. of the twisted sister thing. And then, and it was, you know, the, the emphasis was on the theatrical, like in the case of Alice Cooper. Now Alice Cooper had some great songs and some really good musicianship going on as well. Let's, let's, you know, mm-hmm. have it in perspective, but it was probably that stuff. I felt like they weren't taking it seriously. Like, how seriously were Motley Crue taking themselves? I don't know. To me, it's like they were in on the joke, was was what I thought. Oh, really? Maybe not the Scorpions, but the crew, (laughs) you know. Yeah. When they all came into much, they just played it up. 
it's like we're the bad boys we're taking over your town you know hide your daughters i mean it was just like okay and kiss just led the charge mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they were sort of the first ones through the door with that kind of nuttiness and it was very entertaining and that was what got them i think on television to the extent that it did i mean there had to be really good songs too to you know to make them into hit records but um I think maybe over the years, and you can address this better than I can, because as you say, you play in a hard rock band, is the emphasis might have changed more, you know, post-Metallica or something to musicianship and, you know, thematic concerns, that kind of thing. Uh, Yes and no. I I think there's still a faction of those bands. And I think at this point, it's kind of necessary to almost remind everybody of what came before them. So like paying homage almost to that kind of way of being a band. But as, as you know, as someone just growing up and finding, I was trying to, I found what represented me, so to speak. And then I would watch Mitch music and I just got the feeling that you didn't respect it. And I wanted you to respect it because you, because I, I acknowledged that you were the city limits guy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I watched City Limits and I thought it was more respectable than the Power Hour, but I love the Power Hour and I wanted the City Limits guy to love the Power Hour. If that makes any sense to you. Uh, it does. And, and uh, you know, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, I mean, you know, as the years go by and you've heard a lot of things in a lot of different styles i mean there's a couple ways of putting it you become more discerning or you become more critical hopefully you don't become dismissive but um you know i i mean i was always there was there's aspects of hard rock music that were completely charming to me whether like motorhead you know for example um iron maiden you know there's something something about them that was that was really cool. I mean, I remember going to see their concert and really liking it. Um, maybe some of it, too, was that as a musician, I mean, I can't play that kind of music or write it. So, you know, like anybody, I'm going to have stuff that is in, you know, right in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, stuff that's poppier is probably there i mean that like i grew up listening to you know blues musicians too just probably like you did yeah i mean i when i was a kid it was you know like in the let's say you know around the late 60s early 70s and i was very first starting to go to bars there was a club called the colonial tavern on young street and um that club along with there was one called either Basin Street or Bourbon Street or something on Queen Street, but mostly the Colonial. They had these legends of the blues coming in there when these guys were, you know, they were at a real low ebb of popularity. And um, I remember seeing, you know, Muddy Waters and I was mind boggled. I was just (laughs) Muddy Waters, you know? And he came out on stage and, you know, he had his kid in the band and the band came out and did a warm up. Oh, I should tell you that I, I couldn't afford the cover charge for any of these things. So I had to stand outside, usually in the cold, in my Salvation Army coat, and wait till they took the cover off at midnight. 
So I would go in and for the price of a beer, catch the last set. And, you know, Muddy would come out, he'd play like an 11 minute version of Stormy Monday and then it'd be okay, that's it. You know, but, but I'd seen Muddy Waters and it was just <laughs> right. like sort of hem of the garment, you know. Right. So, and I, I, I tell you this because, you know, we all have our touchstones and the things that we build on. And you might have listened to exactly the same music. You might have listened to, you know, Howlin' Wolf and Lightning Hopkins and all of that stuff. I don't know, but would have gone in a different direction for it. So I always find there's like commonalities. There's mm -hmm. there's areas where we're all going to be able to, or not all, but, but a lot of us are going to be able to agree and have a have something to, to, to kind of mutually respect each other for. And um, it's about, you know, the roots of the music. Sometimes when it gets too far from the roots is when it becomes, unless you're a genius, unless you're David Bowie, it becomes less interesting in some ways. Mm. But that's mm. just an opinion. Carrying on now, or no, I, no, I'm on my soapbox, but I go look out. <laughs> no, and I didn't mean to uh, uh, confront you about it. No, it's cool. it's always been something that I've always wondered, and I, I, it was confirmed to me on the podcast where I'm like, yeah. He doesn't take this as seriously as I take it because you guys were laughing at Roth, and rightfully so. I mean, he is quite a character. We were laughing at Roth, but we were marveling at Bruce Dickinson. Right. I get that, but I, I mean, is Roth not? I mean, is he not playing it for the clown? Isn't he playing it for a laugh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. But after now, I, truthfully, I don't think he's a very good singer either. Mm. But that, yeah, that's up for debate, and people have debated both sides. I've heard both points. I'm yeah. you're talking to a Van Halen fanatic, so I, I'm really I mean, biased. Eddie, you know, he's a guitar god. There's just no, you know, there's no disputing that. Yes. Yeah, I have my uh, theories on Eddie Van Halen, though. Um, I, I think he's a frustrated musician who's realized he makes hamburger rock, but deep down inside, he wants to make avant-garde crazy classical avant-garde noise <laughs> because he did he did, he I like did that. yeah because on balance if you hear on balance there's a track on balance where he includes a noise track and it's from marvin hamlish's piano that eddie van halen destroyed on purpose and then recorded it and he used a piece of the recording on balance wow yeah and it's 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 you know with the van halen audience it kind of goes over their head, including Sammy Hagar, who's dismissed the track. But <laughs> but if you know Eddie as a virtuoso, virtuosos are frustrated a lot of the time. Like geniuses are always frustrated. So to me, I, I really took that to mean that Eddie Van Halen is just kind of stuck. I mean, you're this genius musician, but you're stuck in like this this kind of hamburger rock world when you right. you know you can do anything like uh, 1984 that keyboard track on 1984 is actually a 20 minute piece so there's lots of things i think he doesn't really either deal with or confront or doesn't care anymore you know yeah that's my that's my uh, theory i've done podcasts with people about that so <laughs> well i mean you know he's entitled to get restless too i'm assuming that he wrote the keyboard hook for jump you know yeah right right Right. Well, you bring up Bowie, and I wanted to know, in do while you were writing the book, um, I just when I saw the Bowie chapter and just how people were 
talking about him, I thought maybe it made you go back and kind of uh, concentrate on him more. No, no. I mean, he was such an important figure in that era that he deserved every syllable. And right. I- uh, and, and it's interesting that in order to do this book, like we put out an oral history. It was written by Stuart Berman in 2012. And Stuart, uh, Stuart was the perfect person to write the book because he had no bridges burned. He could talk to our old bandmates who we don't talk to. He can talk to <laughs> bands that, you know, we had a, a feud with and everybody would at least answer him back. So you positioning yourself as the storyteller of the Much Music saga and tale, you seem to be cool with everybody. You know, it's... Yeah, somebody was saying this to me, as a, and I, they meant it as a compliment. They said that somehow you managed to be above the politics of the building. And I just went, well, what politics? <laughs> you know, I just remember it was such a process of discovery. And it was just all happening so quickly that, you know, we didn't have time for a lot of pettiness. It was more just um, get in there and figure out how you're best going to be able to do your job today. And then if you screw up, forget about it because you got to come back and do it again the next day. Right. And, you know, there was always, as you say, you know, stars coming through the door and people to be interviewed and, and events going on. And, and, you know, I mean, and then going back through the history of city TV, when they, they got into covering all, you know, various things like rock in Rio and, you know, the Jamaica sunsplash and just all of those things. Um, much continued in that tradition too of creating, you know, the snow job shows and and the, just all, all sorts of outreach and so on. So there was just so much up in the air and at play at any given time. Um, yeah, you you just had to roll with it. And uh, I guess I thought my role in writing the book was kind of like tour guide mm-hmm. through the era. Because I'd read the the um, MTV book, uh, I Want My MTV, which was very good and very informative. But it was a bit neutral in terms of its point of view. Whoever it was that wrote it, uh, I can't remember his name. I mean, he was clearly knowledgeable and he talked to everybody. It was really thoroughly done. But I didn't get the feeling he had any skin in the game, you know? Mm, right. So, and that can be an asset that, that, you know, in a perfect world lends object, objectivity to the work. But I, I didn't pretend to be objective. I couldn't be objective. I was there from the very first day of the thing. Um, but I, I, as I described it at the time, it was a love letter. It wasn't a tell-all. I mean, sure, maybe the stuff was revealed that people didn't know about, but nothing mm-hmm. salacious. No. No, but I still, I, as a reader, I did want your point of view as a VJ there at Ground Zero. I wanted you to show us your bias or your slant, so... We get a kind of a behind-the-scenes peek. Well, hopefully it provided that. Yeah, it did. And it really brought back a lot of memories. Um, it, was, it was a fantastic read. The thing is, it, it's, it's, it's very specific to a very specific audience. Um, yeah. And that's what I loved. I mean, you, you really kind of narrowed who you were talking to or who you made this book for. You made it for people like me. Um, who grew up with it as a babysitter, 
as a friend, you know, just as something to do and there's nothing else to do. And it just so happened that I loved music before much music started. So it was just a perfect companion as I grew up. And so, you know, I think, I mean, with that in mind, I think we felt like a real sense of responsibility because we were all like music maniacs. That was the one thing that bound everybody in that building. You know, nobody was going to get rich working at much music. Right. And um, we we felt like we represented people who were like us. And, in, you know, maybe some of them were younger than us. But ultimately, they had the same passion for music that had to be really respected. And, I mean, we, I think there was a bit of a potpourri kind of quality too much because we uh you know we covered so much ground whereas if you look at mtv in the early days i mean they were a rock channel really right yeah you know they, they didn't play hip-hop and like you know, a lot of stuff they didn't play we played everything yeah and um maybe that was you know a sort of a learning stage for us in terms of how to program and how to find an audience and then eventually you know they brought in much more music and so on but but i think there was there was a real sense of doing right by the viewer and so for example you know when record companies would come in and they would have a priority artist that they wanted to get their video on and we were like mm, yeah that's all right that's all very well and then we go in the screening room and look at the video, and if it sucked, it didn't go on air. And it didn't matter how much of a priority it was. So no, we just infuriated them. But we tried to do what we thought people would want to see, just plain and simple. And um, I don't know. That's maybe how it, how it was as, as authentic as I think it was. Yeah, I think in this, you know, Canada is so, to me, is so neat and clean and polite. And, you know, nobody ruffles any feathers, but much music just seemed like this wild house. And so it was so refreshing to just turn on the TV and watch something that was from Canada, but just seemed like it was just topsy-turvy all the time. And what kept, I th- at least me watching, was I wanted to be there. Like, I, <laughs> I, wanted, to, I wanted to hang out. If I, if I couldn't be a, a, a VJ or in a band or whatever, I just wanted to hang out. Everyone seemed to be having such a great time, <laughs> Whether, I, even though I knew they were working very hard. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a line. But, um, well, I think sometimes we forgot that we were working. And we, I mean, we just, you know, we just did what we did. And without, I mean, we thought about it. And we were responsible, but we just embraced the chaos. And that was really Moses' directive. Right, right. And John Martin, you know, was, was sort of right all over that. I mean, chaos was his middle name. And so when we were able to forge that into, you know, a 24-hour-a-day, you know, music channel identity... He was delighted, and as was Moses. And and you you do mention John Martin quite a bit. You give him a lot of space, as really the 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 captain of much music. On a day to day basis, he absolutely uh, yeah. was. I mean, Moses was clearly the um, he was the yeah he the, was the you know, leader or whatever yeah yeah he was the creator of creator. the thing yeah yeah 
and 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 he had a lot to do with the look and feel of it too um because remember he's the guy that sort of broke down those barriers in the newsroom you know he I mean he was i think hugely responsible for ending the era of you know the news anchor sitting at his desk mm-hmm. you know with his telephone in the corner of the desk and, you know <laughs> and all the news you know yeah and then he would just read it like and he had people moving from place to place he had a really you know diverse crew of on-air people he took chances with people and all of that flowed over into how you know much functioned um and I, yeah it was it was pretty adventurous and and it fit us just to a t it was just a the natural most natural thing for us like if we'd had to be locked down on a set i think it would have been a rally killer right yeah no, I, I I noted it as well. You know, people like Michael Williams was put up in front. Mike, Monica Diol. Like, I, I yeah. saw, you know, people of color for the first time in the foreground. Um, and it was, yeah, I know Moses was very crucial in all that. And, you know, much music, I think, even with this gen- with my generation... Uh, all you guys, I'd say first wave and second wave, but mainly first wave, really, whether people acknowledge it or not, or realize it or are aware of it, really had a lot to do with laying the foundation of a lot of things about how they grew up and how they see the world now. Yeah. I mean, I loved it when, um, you know, Master T started doing his thing. Right. Master T's another one. Yeah. Tony Young. Yeah. And he's a beautiful guy. I, I love Tony. And he, I mean, he brought a sensibility in terms of the music that he was interested in, as did Michael Williams, of course. Um, and, but he was really, really involved in the community. And um, he just brought a lot of that to air. And I think he had an approachability about him that... Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we'd seen anybody quite like that on television in Canada before that I mm-hmm. know of. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Christopher, I mean, uh, I, I know you, you, you're you busy and everything. I'm just so happy to have uh, talked to you today about your book and Famous Lost Words, your podcast. Um, <laughs> I know, well, I could probably pick your brain and try and get more stories, but I will tune in. Season two, uh, with bated breath, awaiting the stories you just happen to drop (laughs) because Tom (laughs) brings them up. Now, do you guys coordinate that? Like, I'm going to, I got a great story about this person. Dig up, Um, dig away. But but usually if I say, oh, we're doing so-and-so today. Yeah, I, you know, I I had an encounter with him. He said, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me anything. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm like, okay. And then once we get into it, then he's hearing it for the first time. That's that's how he likes it to, to be. Oh, that's great. And, um, you know, he's been working on a live radio show for so many years uh, that that he, that's a natural sort of thing for, for him. Mm-hmm. So, no, we, I mean, we we have a script in the sense that we know the, the sequence of what we're going to play. And we listen to the interview clips beforehand. 
but we don't rehearse any of the back and forth. I mean, there's lots of mistakes in it, as you can hear, and stumbles and, you know, things that I might put in a different way given an opportunity. But I think it's better that it's that it's loose and live. It does sound loose, but it also sounds really pro. I mean, you guys are super pros, so it doesn't... There's no fumbling that I can hear. And I even fumbled that sentence about fumbling. <laughs> well, we... We have a producer who records it at the time, Adam Karch, and he, I, he may go back and take some of our ups and ahs out. I don't know. When I listen to it, I don't hear the I don't hear the edits. So right. You know? Oh yeah. Oh, that's great. You know, I did want to say, even though I kind of, I don't, I don't want you to leave here and think that like I confronted you on your whole hard rock snub or whatever or metal heavy metal. No, snub. no. You you made me think about it. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I you mean, did put Bon Jovi on the cover of your book. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, he's he's come around. But Well, I put them on the cover because they yeah. were huge and they were right. emblematic of something, of, you know, a world-class band that grew up at exactly the same time that Much did, you know, right from right. the time when they right. made that visit to City Limits, the all-night show, when they had one single out. Nobody knew who they were. They'd played the Alma Combo to 20 people, and they came in just goofed around. And, you know, that's that was kind of us, just yeah. goofing around and figuring it out. And then they came back three years later, you know, having sold 11 million records. And um, they only chose, they, they said, we're only doing one show, and they came on my show. I thought that is cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I, I yeah. mean, that's super cool. So I, it's definitely worthy of, of putting them on the cover. And I have to say, if we're talking about much music, I've had a lifelong crush on Lori Brown, and it ah. still stands to this day. And so I, I, I don't know if maybe I'll edit this out. Um, but yeah, I'll tell her. <laughs> It still stands to this day. So as long as, you, uh, as long as you don't behave like Gene Simmons oh God. In, the, in the interview, then I think oh. we're, we're, you're okay. <laughs> you know, I, I actually taped that interview on VHS. I have that digitized now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I know exactly the quote that's mentioned in your book <laughs> and yeah. I know exactly how he said it. And I even remember her face <laughs> and I, I distinctly remember thinking to myself that didn't, please her and I will not talk like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's just a great book. It was a great walk down, um, Thanks. memory lane. I, I loved it. I, that's why I had to, I read it and then I immediately reached out to you on Twitter, but I'm just glad to have run into you when we did. And, and, uh, I'm going to thank Jay for that. And, and, you know what? I, 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 I'm just going to keep listening. I already listening. did. I talked to him this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm going to hey, email. guess what, man? <laughs> well, and I, I, I can't wait to listen to more Famous Lost Words. So Thanks. I subscribe and I love it. Well, bless you. I appreciate it. And this was really fun. So anytime you want to talk. Oh, that that's great. I, I, I mean, there's... Uh, maybe after season two, I'll, I'll have you on again because... I swear to God, I could go in many different directions with you. And that's what was kind of giving me the jitters. I'm like, where do I start with, with this guy? I can go here and I can go there, but, and it's all heavy stuff, you know? So 
I'm just, I just, let's stick with what I originally set out to talk to you about, which was, is this live, which is the great book. Thank you so much. I really, that, that means a lot to me. Favor the sweet love. 